You are listening to the Alouette's Flight Deck, a proud member of the Canadian Football Podcast Network. All right, folks, we've been clear for takeoff. And welcome to Alouette's Flight Deck, podcast dedicated to Montrealouette's football. I am Tim Capper, along with Cliffy D. Hey, Cliff, it's uh, this episode's a little bit different than what we have done before. I mean, we've had a couple of them uh, through our uh, six years of doing the podcast, but this is another one of those special episodes where uh, we're just going to be talking with uh, a uh, uh, a very well known and now former Montreal Alouette's alum, aren't we? Absolutely. Uh, it's always exciting to be able to talk to players, uh, whether they be current players or former players for the Montreal Alouettes, and being able to sit down and talk with a bona fide legend was definitely very exciting. So I'm, I'm very excited to present this episode to you folks. I, I hope you're ready for what I think is going to be a truly eye-opening chat with a true Alouettes superstar. Yeah, that's right. And no matter what number you may have known, known him by, I, I think that really... Uh, anybody who has been following the uh, following the Alouettes in the latter years uh, of his career will know his number very well. And uh, just to give a little tease there uh, uh, to everybody there, Cliff, uh, what number is that? It's not one. It's not two. It's not three. It's not four. <laughs> it's not five. It's not even six. How about eight? Oh, no, no. You went too far. Oh, you went okay. too far. Okay. Number seven. Ladies and gentlemen, the Alouette's Flight Deck was very pleased and honored to sit down and speak with Alouette's legend, John Bowman. That's right. And uh, very, I hope you guys do stay for the entire interview. Well worth the time uh, that we spoke with him. And there's a lot of things that we did talk with him. And actually, uh, to be fully transparent. This was an episode that took place over two days, um, so we wanted to make sure that uh, if we had, if he had something that he wanted to talk to us about, we wanted to make sure that we gave him the time to do so. And uh, as Cliff said, uh, we were very, uh, we are very honored to be speaking with him. So, uh, without further ado, let's speak with Iowa's legend, John Bowman. And with this episode is the gentleman who. In I think both Cliff, in my opinion, that if he is not a, a first ballot Hall of Famer, once he becomes eligible, the people in the Hall of Fame got a couple of screws loose. On the line with us now, you know him very well. It's Mr. John Bohm. Hey, John, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> hey, now I, it, it, I, took, I, it took me a few years to get on. But <laughs> it, it, well, let, put it this way, John. We don't want to just, you know, have you on for like two minutes, talk about, uh, you know, <laughs> stupid cliches or whatever. We want to have the real John Bowman on and give you the space you deserve. Yeah. We've got to give you your flowers, man. Yeah, that sounds nice. Um, we know you started off before you came to the Alouettes. And I'm, I'm actually interested to hear this from, you know, not being drafted in 05, coming out of Wingate. You ended up playing in indoor football and it was... It was the um, middle rung of indoor football. You know, yeah. you played, played in the NIFL, and then you played in um, 
the United Indoor Football League. Yeah. Um, I, I, first question I wanted to ask you, and this is 05, by the way, for prefacing those who, who don't know where I'm talking about. How was it making the change from college football to the 50-yard indoor game when you first played for Daytona Beach? It was it was actually, you know what, it was fun because, well, we didn't have to run a lot. So if we ran fast to the ball, uh, you knock somebody into the wall and, and, and the play's over. And the mm-hmm. play is over in less than two seconds. Yeah. Uh, so it was just a bunch of fun and guys trying to make it. Like back then, I really didn't know too much about CFL. Uh, you know, pardon my ignorance. We thought Canada was like all the way across the world from us in the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, yeah, like we wanted to play in arena or we wanted to play in the NFL. And so, like, I, after I got finished playing, I think 03, everybody's like, oh, John, if you gain some weight, because I was like 215 pounds, it's like, hey, if you gain like 30, 40 pounds, you can you can play at the next level. Because the NFL guys at that time, in that specific specific era in the NFL, were like 270, 280, you know, Julius Peppers kind of guys. Yeah. And I was like 220, you know, max. Uh, so I took the year off, and I got up to like 240. And I played arena, and we had a we had a blast. It was like terrible pay. It was two hundred dollars and two fifty. We won. Our owner wrote us fake checks, so like guys would put them in their bank account and it bounced for days. And it was it was sad, but there was a bunch of guys that had had a really good time hanging out with and and uh, and chilling, just just trying to get up get some film, get our name out there. And also in 05 from Daytona, I think uh, I think Daytona was barred from the playoffs for whatever reason that year. Then you signed with Sioux City Bandits, which is still around today because they're a, a, a pretty well-known um, franchise in indoor football. Uh, yeah. I remember while doing some research, John, for our interview, I remember trying to find some some old stories about you. And then I came across one from the Sioux City newspaper. They were talking about you. And how <laughs> and how well you were doing because you actually started to make a name for yourself on the defensive side of the ball when you were playing in Sioux City. Yeah, it was actually weird. Like it's so crazy. Like I had a good year in Daytona, but some, like our owner did, couldn't pay the bill, and and the arena didn't want to pay for 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 us anymore. So they was like, "Listen, you guys are you you're kicking you're done." Yeah. So uh, they said we got disqualified from the playoffs, even though we only lost like two games. Um, so I ended up in uh, Sioux City, Iowa, which I don't recommend for a lot of people. But again, I had a good time because just the team. Like if, if you played for the Bandits, everybody knew who you were. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went up there with like four games ago and like I, a couple sacks, touchdown, interception, fumble recovery. Like I was I was playing pretty good. And, and, and like you said, I started to get a little buzz. Um, but again, I had still had to wait my turn after that too. Um, in 06, and this is where you're, you know, we, we joke when we talk about the six degrees of separation or six degrees as Kevin Bacon, however you want to call it, um, where your ties to the CFL start kind of started when you played indoor football again in 06 for the Rome Renegades. Mm-hmm. Um, this is where you happen to play, and I'm curious to know about this situation, John. When you actually were playing with a, which would be a, um, a future 
a teammate in Marcus Brady. Mm. Um, how how is it that I mean how how well did you and did did you, did you get along playing for Rome and uh, how was uh, how did you and Marcus get along at at the beginning? Well, I mean, I was the best player in the team, so everybody. Oh, Marcus was the quarterback, but I was like, I felt like I was the best player in the team, yeah. period. Uh, but so like he was the quarterback. Everybody treated him with respect. We knew who he like he he had told us about uh CFL that year. He's like, he pulled me to the side. He's like, hey, you you need to be trying to come with me back to the CFL. I was like, oh, what's the CFL? And he explained it to me. Uh so like it wasn't just him, it was it was Marcus. It was a, we had another defense, uh, offensive lineman named Dwayne Morgan, mm-hmm. uh, who yeah. played for Edmonton too. Uh, I think Pop came down to look at those two guys, and here I was, I guess, balling out. And Pop was like, he Pop actually told me the story. He's laughing. He's like, who is this guy on film, like just buzzing? I don't even like. I just came to watch the quarterback. Yeah, and I was just, I was just flying around. Uh, but me and Marcus always got along. You know, I mean, he had TVs in his car, so. Going <laughs> practice or something, or after practice we sit in this car and watch watch some TV or whatever. And then we came up to Montreal. We were we were roommates. Me, him, and uh, and uh, uh, Biscuit Devon Claybrook. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> I got some ties to a lot of coaches. But uh, me, him, and, and Biscuit were roommates. And and uh, but Marcus, he came. We came to Montreal in '06. He had already played for Hamilton and Toronto, so. He had, he had told me the like what to do, what to expect. Tried to explain to me about the ratio. I, I didn't know what that meant at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he tell me about uh, exchange rate. He, it, it was great back then. It was like ninety cents. Uh, but you know, he was a good dude. He he helped me a real uh, a lot. And he's the he's probably the only reason why I got to Montreal because if Pop wasn't looking for a backup quarterback to AC, uh, you know, I wouldn't be here. Yeah. So that that that's actually I love I love hearing that how because I know early in the early days when Pop was there, Pop's the type of general manager who would look everywhere for players. <laughs> he was scoured the earth. Yeah. And me and Billy Parker had this conversation uh a week ago. Jim Pop will go to the ends of the earth if somebody said this guy was a baller mm-hmm. and and, he, and that's how he got his name. Like he was a worker. Like he put in the work, he cut his tooth, uh, in the CFL scouting, you know what I mean? For Saskatchewan. So like he was, he would go, I'm, and I'm living proof that he would go to legit ends of the world to find, uh, good football players. Well, it's funny. You mentioned Billy Parker. There was also Gerald Brown. There was, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, if, if it not been for, I guess how Jim Pop worked again, as you were saying, neither you nor a lot of his other players would ever have been heard of and made a name yep. for themselves in Montreal or in the CFL. Yep, I mean, he, he, Jim Pop, owe, I owe a lot of a lot of my career to that guy. You know, what I mean, not even just bring me up here. Just fast forward, you know, ten years after mm-hmm. in, in 2015, when some coaches thought I was done, and Jim Pop. You know what I mean? Came in, he's like, "Listen, <laughs> y'all wake up." You know, and I went on to have about twenty sacks that year. So, um, yeah, I owe a lot. I owe a lot to Pop, and you know what I mean? It's 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 hard to uh, repay him for everything, but he knows how I feel about him. 
how was it awesome how was it used to getting to the so you're going you go from college ball to 50 yard fields to now you're going to 110 yard field <laughs> how was it how was it your first rookie camp in and getting used to the canadian game oh I, it was tough it was a struggle like I, first of all i just played like 10 12 games in uh in rome georgia and so like my legs were already shot and so i came to camp like I was in shape, but I was fatigued, so I had to grind my way through. And they had that, that back then. They had Anwar, they had Tug, who had just come off a of rookie of the year. They had um, what's his name? True Luck, Arkell True yep, Luck, Arkell. another so another guy like, from Arena. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So I was in the back of the bus, you know, and I came to camp late, so I was behind some other rookies, Petey Achilano, Dion Holtz. I was behind a lot of guys. And but you know I just fought my way through. Like I was tired every day. Coach was like, "You all right, John? You need to take a break." Nope. Like I would go into the training room, get my ice, get my stem, whatever, and just grind and, and pop. I think they were about to cut me in 06. and Pop was like, "Okay, Ed got hurt. Ed Fillion had got hurt in practice. He's like, well, just put Bowman in in that three technique uh, for the second through fourth quarter." So like I had to play three technique at. 235 uh, <laughs> for three quarters, and I held my own. I had a couple of sacks. You know, they seen how tough I was, and and that that tr- that spring that that training camp game against Winnipeg set me up. Wow. And the rest, as they say, is I, I history. I to say, of all the it times, is. we we almost never knew the name John Bowman. That's crazy. <laughs> I was so close to the cutting board, like like I, Jim Pop will probably tell you to this day, like. If I could not have played three technique, and not to say I played it well, I was just feisty, like whatever. Like somebody's going to get me, I'm going to get them back. That was my mentality. Like you don't play football. I didn't play football pretty. Like everything I did was was gritty. Like I worked hard. So that that was the mentality that he wanted. But if I couldn't play three technique, they would have, like, I would have never been heard from. Um, go ahead, go ahead, Cliff, go ahead. All right, I was going to say, uh, now that you've gotten yourself uh, pretty much ensconced in Montreal, uh, what were your first impressions of not just being in Montreal, but being in Canada altogether? Well, my first impression in 06 was like, oh, Canada stinks. But that's only because <laughs> we went from the airport right to St. jean sur richelieu Okay. And like, we skipped right through Montreal. I didn't know what Montreal was. I was like... Oh, they only speak French here, and yeah, I mean, there's nothing to do, like nothing to do. I think we went to Route 66 like ten times, <laughs> you know. Uh, it was bad, uh, but as soon as we got to the city, like after the preseason over, we got to the city, and you see how diverse my like. And I'm from the south, like I I was born in New York, but I grew up in, in North Carolina. So, so you go to a city like Montreal with every different ethnic background you can think of, every type of uh, festival you can think of, every kind of different food you can think of. Like, I was blown away. Like, and the, the women there are gorgeous. Uh, and that, 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 that stroked my, my, my interest at the beginning, too. But um, it's a beautiful city, man. And most of Canada is, 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 is great, you know, like, you got some b- bad towns like Saskatchewan and Hamilton. <laughs> All are fun towns, but their their fan base is loyal to a to a fault there. So like it's not 
even throughout the league, throughout the cities, like even if the town isn't like Montreal, like Toronto, like Vancouver, they still love their they love their football teams and things like that. So it's it's parts of the town that make the make it special, just not my kind of special. Mm-hmm. But I, I I do I'm gonna miss Canada. Like I love Canada, and I'm for sure I'll be back one day. Yeah. Um. With your your first year in, in 06, you know, get you finally get used to the game. They get they have you in uh, where I don't know where your residence was at that time where you're where you're living, what part of the city? But we were downtown. Were you okay? Yeah. Um, what uh, what was it like in the locker room? You know, being a rookie. Um, yeah, I know you can look back at it now, but what was it like being a rookie in that locker room? Uh, you know, new city, new game. Um. How did your how'd your teammates treat you? Well, they they treated me fine because they knew like I, I was a worker. Yeah, and like so I didn't come in there like I I played Division two, I didn't play in the NFL like whatever like so I didn't come in there with any any big big head aspirations. I came in there to play football, mm. and the thing that saved like that helped me a lot. Like I I walked into a locker room with. 10 with seven hall of famers with another five on the, just the cutting edge of the hall of fame. So like I, I came, I only thing I had to do was do my job, <laughs> you know? And that's what Jonesy told us. He's like, Bo, I mean, you're going to be starting some games, some day, some games you're going to come off the bench, some games you ain't going to play. He said, only thing we need to do is for you to show up when your number's called. And so games I played, I think I played like 12 or 14 games my rookie year. Uh, like I played as good as I could. And, and that was all they asked for me. Some games I had to sit due to injuries and uh, Canadian rules and stuff like that. And and that's what I did. But, you know, walking into that locker room every day, you see AC who's give, who's busting his butt to get it done, to get us to a great cup. And you got Stu and you got Flory and OKK, these guys. Like you just want to play hard. And, but we had a great mix. Like we had guys like Cahoon who was strictly professional, uh, but he knew how to have fun and he was a jokester too. And he had a bunch of rookies. Me and Chip were rookies. Marcus Stale, rookies. Uh, uh, we talk about guys who become entrenched into the Alouette uh, culture forever. Yeah. So like we we just had to play our part. Uh, not uh, not not mess up. Not disturb the rhythm of what the what the team had going on. And that's what we did. You know, Chip had to back up uh, Strickland, Timothy Strickland, and Dwayne Butler. And, it, like, it was, it was phenomenal the amount of guys, the amount of talent that was in that locker room. Said that we got cheated in the Great Cup that year. But, you know, we had a great time. And, and you know, it was really fun. And, and they, they accepted all of us. Yeah. Ben Cahoon treated me just like I was AC. You know, it was never any favoritism or anything like that. Um. I've spoken to many players. Some claim they don't. It doesn't matter what their stats are. Some say, "Sure, it matters. To, uh, matter to me." Uh, that second week, uh, in week two versus Hamilton, you finally get your first forced fumble. Um, did you? You look back at that. At that point, did you say to yourself, "I think I'm going to do okay in this game," or was it at any other point where you said, where, where you thought to yourself? Um, I think I'm going to do pretty good in this in this game. Well, I mean, 
like I, I, I remember the play was against uh, the running back was Ronick, I think, and he just ran through my hole and I hit the ball. So it was like it was. I mean, I don't make it one seem like it's, it was insignificant, right? But it's just me playing like how I do. Like I held my position, and it's crazy that I still remember the play. And the guy he tried to run through me as I was being blocked, and I I just swiped at the ball and. I remember Chris Jones like going berserk on the sideline, like, "Yeah, this is the effort we need. This is what we like." And I didn't even know what I did until until we watched film two days later because I was just playing football, you know. And uh, but I, I always I always knew I can play. It was just me getting used to the being a yard off, mm-hmm. uh, getting used to the 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 no holding calls, um, being getting used to the uh, up and down nature of. Uh, being a rookie, like I, I played offense, I played special teams, so I had to learn a whole playbook. It was just get once I got that down, I found my rhythm a couple a couple years later, and I was good. Yeah, and then just a couple weeks later, you get your first of what people became to know you for. You got your first sack <laughs> versus Winnipeg in Week Five. Um, yeah, in Winnipeg. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a. Like I, I, it was crazy because like now that I'm thinking about the sack of my head, like I had the worst celebration ever, <laughs> and and it, like I didn't know because like back then when you got a sack and being a rookie, whatever you up and down off the roster, you don't know when the second one's coming. Like I only had two that year. I think the other one came against Saskatchewan a couple of weeks later, but yeah, we just like I had I was just having fun. And that was that was how I played. I've got to ask this, and I'll let Cliff get to get to his next question. How do you, you're dead on with when you got your second sack? How do you football players remember these details when I can't remember my locker combination? <laughs> I mean, I only had a few of them, so no. But you just just like we only had two in a year. I think I had two, two. Yeah, I had two that year. Like you know yeah. what. what those two, so like, um, it, good memory. I, I was never diagnosed with a concussion. I guess is it. Do you think it was another thing too? Because you remember fondly back on your rookie year. Do you think is that why it stands out the most? Because yeah, oh for sure. Like my rookie year, I had to earn. I had to earn my 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 check. Like everything I got. Like because like I'm saying, when you're a rookie and you like you're not a star. Obviously, I wasn't a star. I wasn't like Chip was. Like we already knew who Chip was gonna be. He ran like a four two. Yeah. Like when you're a worker B like me, and you're up and down off the roster, and you, I, I'm coming off a twelve game season in in uh, already in arena football. Like I worked for everything I got, and and you know, out of all the coaches, like every coach would tell you, no matter what, like if I if they thought I was sucked or if they thought I was the best thing since sliced bread, they would say he he always worked. And that was one thing I, I tried to hold my head on. Yeah. Cliff. All right. Now, that rookie season of yours, you end up going to the Grey Cup, coming up short against the uh, BC Lions. Two years later, go back to the Grey Cup at home against Montreal, come up short again. At what point, like, do you still have that, do you get that wonder if, uh, Am I doing so? What am I doing? How do I get over that hump? Like, do you ever get those thoughts in your head, or is it just kind of like it's coming, it's coming? I just got to keep working at it. Well, at that time, like, 
I thought going to the Great Cup was easy. <laughs> we, went, we went four times in, in five years, and I, I never sniffed another one. Another one. Uh, but no, like I, I didn't know. Like if that like, that question is better suited for older guys, guys like AC and them. Like, I, cause I just worked and like in 08, 0, 06 and 08, I wasn't like people didn't know me for anything. Like I, I remember reading a report when somebody's like, "Oh." Bowman is a decent uh, gaps gap filler for the next, you know what I mean, great defensive end we're going to have after Anwar. And I was like, cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, no, uh, like I, that's all people expected of me was just be just hold the position down until the next great defensive end comes. And so, like, nobody knew who I was in those years. So back then I was just like, don't mess up. Like, don't be the one known for messing up and blowing the game and, and coming up short or, or or anything like that, don't do anything stupid. Um, so, like at that time, I was still trying to earn my keep. And like we already knew in '08 when Tresna first got here, we and Billy Parker and Gerald Brown, those guys came in, and Josh Burke and and, and Jeff Parrott. Like we already knew we was a good team. We were ahead of the curve. Like we were ahead of where it's supposed to be in '08. I think the numbers had us to win. Two or four games in 08, we ended up winning like eight, nine, or ten and going to the Great Cup. And then 2009, we already knew, like, we thought we were going to go undefeated. And you damn near did, too. I remember 15 <laughs> and three. Like, wow. Yeah, we had, we had a great year, but we already knew it was in our locker room. So, like, in 08, when we played against Calgary, and Calgary, like, they, they scored one touchdown right before the half. Um, and they didn't score another touchdown. They kicked their their field goal kicker one play of the game. Uh, so it was crazy. Like defensively, we felt like we played good. I'm sure AC and them wish they could have did some more in that game. But you know, like for us, it wasn't get like it was for me personally, individually establishing myself and and, and trying to be professional and, and not being the one who met, who loses it for those guys. Mm-hmm. Now, talk about. When you finally do get that brass ring, when you do finally win that Grey Cup, and the Grey Cup, your first Grey Cup, <laughs> without question, the most memorable yes. Grey Cup in in yeah. modern history, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I, I don't care. Maybe if not, if you're not if you're a Saskatchewan fan. <laughs> yeah. No, they, they, but, it's still memorable. It's still memorable, but for a different reason. <laughs> Talk to us about your your thoughts during that game, like just like all the highs, the lows, everything that went into it. Talk to us from John Bowman's perspective about the 2009 Grey Cup. Well, I mean, it's actually tell you the truth. The first three quarters went felt like they were like five minutes. Like the first half, I don't even remember blinking because like we open up. They get a fumble and a touchdown, an interception, a touchdown, something like that. Like, we, we open up bad offensively. And defense, like, we coach say, hey, just hold on. You know what I mean? The AC and going to right the ship, and we're going to turn it back up in the second half. And, like, we went in at halftime. It was guys defeated. It was a lot of defeat all through the first three quarters. And I don't know what sparked us in, in the fourth quarter. I think Ooze might have came to the sideline and he said something like he really fired up the, the boys and and then uh, Billy had got an interception and then 
one of the most pivotal plays of that game was uh, Boule saving a Brian Bratton muff punt. Mm-hmm. You know that would that would have that would have really put on a wrench in the plans. But the whole game was a blur. It was fun. It was a hard fought. I got, it was a close game through and through, except for the like that we got to the last five to eight minutes. We like, hey, we got to change something. And you know, AC and, and Jay Rich and and Coburn, they did their thing. And Ben Ben Cahoon with a great layout uh, catch in the in the end zone. There, it was it was a great game. And uh, I like it, it's just crazy to talk about it. Just I'm visualizing in my head. It was just a. Long it was, the long faces went to excitement in five minutes. It, it was a great game to be a part of. And then watching the kick, like watching, well, both kicks essentially. <laughs> so like I already knew it was I, like like I'm on the wing, the whole middle. I had nobody on me, so I got a great view of the kick. And I was like, you know, we were gonna kill them. Like first of all, we fought and clawed to get back in this game. You do nothing the whole game. And and not, like I love Damon, but he bought some punts. He had some bad punts. He had missed that field goal, and I was gonna kill him. Uh, he was like, "Oh, I knew they had too many. Whatever." You didn't know that before the kick. You just found out after. Uh, but just seeing it, like I saw it the whole time, and like I had my head down, and and but looking down at the flag, seeing we got a reprieve. That's that saved the day. And I don't think the first kick was like I don't know I don't kick field goals but it's like thirty three or thirty eight yards so I don't think it was that I didn't think it was that difficult I thought it was money in the bank. Mm-hmm. Now we've we spoke with Ben Cahoon uh, for a, a couple of years ago regarding the the whole thing. Damon cl- claims that he saw the flags before the kick happened. It's ben impossible. doesn't, ben doesn't believe it at all. So. Play runs. <laughs> I, I, okay, I just I was serious. Like I know you said you had your head down and maybe you were just gonna you know, focus on the task at hand, but No, no, no. You, like I was moping. I had my head down moping. Uh but they don't throw because the, the player, the thirteenth guy can run off the field. So they don't throw it until the ball is snapped. And wow. then like by that time his head is supposed to be down looking at the ball. Right. <laughs> so he, he shouldn't see the flag whatsoever. Whatsoever. But that's a great story to tell people. <laughs> it's all about the legend, right? <laughs> <laughs> I missed a sixty-yard field goal going into the wind. You know, it's a great story. But listen, like me being a football player, I know like they don't throw the flag because the play doesn't start until the guy snaps the ball. The guy can still run off, and a kicker's mechanic should be down looking at the ball by then. So if he saw the the flag. He, he he's gonna miss the kick the whole time. Man, I, I still love him though. Like if you listen to this, Damon, I love you. Like you still my guy. Because he had a great year. Other than that, like he had a great year that year. That's true. He statistically had an extremely good year. It's just that that one picture of the game, like you said, the first three quarters were just uh, forgettable. <laughs> but you're only as good as your next player, right? And agree. Once, uh, once he, once that ball goes to the uprights, it's all in the past, right? It's just, you know. to hero. Yep. In, in thirty seconds. <laughs> now, talk to us about the Grey Cup celebration afterwards, because this is the one thing that the, a lot of those players from those 09, 2010 teams talk about is the celebrations in Montreal. Talk to yeah, us from your perspective of it. 
I, I mean, obviously, I can't tell you what went on, but like I like for like I'm just gonna combine both years and nine and ten. Well, 2010 was less because I had a girlfriend at the time. Uh, but like those those two weeks, three weeks post uh, Grey Cup were the blurriest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Like Montreal, I mean, you got to think the town, the town that hasn't won a championship since uh, 02, you know, and they always wait for the Habs to become good again. Uh, and that's been since like 93. And, but, you know, the town just likes likes to win. And, and that's the kind of town Montreal is. So when we won, they they brought the, the, the red carpet was rolled out everywhere. It was amazing. It was crazy. I've never party like that in my life i've never felt so and i'm a humble guy but i I never felt big before in my life until that year and just seeing the the doors open and opportunities and and stuff like that and i was a free agent so like uh no i had just resigned excuse me i just resigned so like like i I was gonna be in montreal another three years so just in 2009 just having that was was icing on the cake Man, yeah. just but every time I think about, like I said, just thinking about it gives me chills. Just, it's, it's incredible. <laughs> like, I've never seen. I don't know. I don't know the final numbers. It was two hundred, three hundred thousand people on St. Catherine that day. I don't know. They said between three and four and five. I don't know how many hundred thousand people it was, but it was ridiculous. Like you couldn't hear the next guy on the float standing next to you. Uh, it was crazy. Like 2009, especially uh, 2010. I think they just got whatever. They're like, oh, they're gonna keep winning again. Mm-hmm. So they just be- became used to it. But 2009 was ridiculous. Like doing everything, it was crazy. Now, after that championship, you get that championship experience underneath your belt. At what point did you feel like you actually belong? Like truly belonged? as, like, one of the premier players of the Canadian Football League? Yeah, so, like, honestly, and I don't, I don't, you guys know me, I don't toot my own horn, but in 2009, like, I should have won Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, like, that's the way I feel. That's the way I, I didn't get nominated for my team. And that goes for a few times. But, like, 2009 was the year, like, I was like, okay. I, excuse me, I'm lying. 2008 Grey Cup. Like, I didn't have a lot of... I didn't have any sacks, but just the amount of hits I had on Hank. Um, I had, a, like, six tackles or whatever. But 2008 Grey Cup was when I felt like, okay, I can do this. And, and that year I'm going against the guy who won, like, O-lineman of the year and rookie rookie of the year. I uh, uh, forget his name, but he played left tackle for Calgary. So two, 2008 Grey Cup was the, the game I felt like I, I've arrived. And 2009, I think I had, like, 12 sacks or something like that. And I led the league in sacks, forced fumbles, fumbles recovery. Uh, you know what I mean? Tackles from a D lineman. So I should have won defensive player of the year, but congrats to John Chick. Yeah. Now, and, uh, uh, go ahead, Tim. No, I was going to say, you know, you look back at your, your at this time in Montreal, and a lot of people will remember this. And we've heard this from many different players, but we wanted your uh, your side of this thing. But, what was it like being a player under Coach Mark Trestman? I mean, if you if you play defense, 
he felt a little slighted, but you know, Tristan's a great dude. He's just like he he is he's tonal vision, so he knows what he wants. He's well prepared, whatever. Right. But everything we did was for AC. Like everybody else was like second tier. You know what I mean? And I love AC. I love Tress. Whatever I still talk, talk to them to this day. But everything we did was for AC. AC was the only reason he felt like we had a chance, and we felt otherwise. Um, uh, and I don't know, but I, I've heard from some backup quarterbacks at the time, like why they didn't come back was because they didn't feel like they had a chance to, you know, I mean, to learn and develop because everything was AC mm-hmm. dominant. And I mean, whatever. AC is a great quarterback, so you can't fault Tristan for that. But you know, it, it was tough. It was tough, and, and it was it was good and bad. Like, yeah, it was yeah. tough. Like getting blamed for things or not feeling the same love that the offense felt. But we were winning, so like winning is, cures everything. Actually, that's true. <laughs> you brought up something, and I want to follow up on it. I know you're on the defensive side of the ball, but you happen to mention that how some players, quarterbacks, did not come back because they didn't feel that you know it was it was the AC, AC show, which we which we know why, and we understand why he's, yeah. he's in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. In your opinion, because you've been you've been through the good and the bad in Montreal, do you think that particular thing of not of the team not developing a backup quarterback? Uh, allow the team to falter as as it did as of you know the last you know five five out of six years or, or six out of oh, seven years for sure yeah. for sure i mean i mean and during that time when we had some good defenses and whatever and we had some great receivers but it was such a it was such a um revolving door at quarterback it's hard to build stability and whatever and, and listen i don't blame trust whatever like that's his job is to play ac and AC's job is to play quarterback. So, right. like, uh, but every every team that struggles, or ninety percent of teams that struggle in football, NFL, CFL, don't they don't have a consistent quarterback. You know, some teams have a good quarterback, but you know their defense stinks. So we we get that, but that's very rare when that happens. But um, yeah, like that was that was probably the the main. One of the main reasons why we had some some down some lean years. Yeah. All right. Well, defensively, I mean, like you definitely set the standard for everybody. But uh, I know it, sometimes you're only as good as who, who your coach is. And uh, we actually had one of your old coaches or defensive coordinators, I should say, on a couple of weeks ago in uh, Jeff Reinbold, and he had nothing but love for you. Talk to me about playing for Jeff Reinbold. <laughs> it was a crazy, quirky dude. I mean, I like Jeff. Like, uh, like I got hurt that year in, in 2012. I, I told my MCL, whatever, in training camp, so I had to have surgery. Uh, but, like, I, I told them, and I told them privately, I told them out in front of everybody. That year in 2012, I learned the most about football than I've ever learned in my life. Like, because we played a different defense. We played, like, a 3-5 or th- I don't know what it called. It was a hybrid and I was playing a lot of linebacker, or in, or, or when I was down, I was playing uh, a four eye. It was just inside the offensive lineman, but it was. I learned a lot about coverage, about the reasons why they do stuff, and like before, I just line up and go rush the quarterback or tackle the running back. But when I had to think and and, and react and, and read, like he opened my eyes to a whole nother level of defense. 
that I, I, I never knew. And I respect him for it. You know, he caught a lot of bad flack for whatever happened in, in 2012. But uh, we weren't very good up and down that year. I don't like. I don't. I don't. I can't think of one part of our team that was good in 2012. Uh, but he tried, and, and and you know, hats off to him. He's a he's a good dude. He means well, and he like he compliments me to this day, John. I've never seen another guy had to play for nine defensive coordinators and still put up all stars for all of them. You know, it, it, you know that's 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 one of those things a lot of people don't get to don't really see. Like I, I played for a lot of coaches, and I had to remain consistent for for a, bu- a bunch of them. But uh, definitely a good time with Coach Ryan Bolt. Now, on the flip side, uh, was there any coaches that you would have rather not played for? As far we'll start defensively, but because I, I, I'm kind of leading some towards something, and we'll get to it in a bit. But uh, <laughs> as far as DCs go, like is yeah, there a- I mean, not for sure. Like me and Thorpe butted heads. Uh, I mean, with me and Thorpe was like it's it's it's, it's tough to realize why we butted heads when I did everything. I broke my back for this dude, but he 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 just he's he's one of those ungrateful coaches. Uh, like I didn't have a lot of coaches I didn't like. Like him, probably my my D line coach my rookie year. His name was like uh, Mike Miller or Coach Miller or something like that. He was he was a bit of a douche. Uh, but it's not very many coaches where I could say, oh, they're just it, oh, excuse me, Coach uh, Keith Willis was uh he's up there with uh with uh, Thorpe so. But, you know, that's three coaches, four coaches max in, in 14 years, so it's not too bad. All things considered, that's not too bad at all. <laughs> <laughs> could, could definitely be a lot worse. And, again, you're, you're the kind of player that, you know, I, I also get the impression that what are you going to tell John Bowman that he doesn't already know, too, right? So, <laughs> but, I, but the thing is, like, I never acted like that. Like, I never, big, I never big-headed anybody. I always went to practice. Uh, like even when I was hurting, I practice whatever. So like, I got never use me being whatever I did in Montreal, hang over the head of any coach. All right, and uh, now this is going to lead into uh, a discussion, especially a discussion we had with Nick Lewis uh, back uh, during Grey Cup. Uh, because Nick's got nothing but love for you as well, but uh, yeah. he 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 was telling us a few stories about. Uh, Yourself and Tom Higgins, uh, that was uh, quite the interesting relationship it sounded like you guys were having. Well, I mean, the thing with Higgins was, like, Higgins didn't – I didn't have an issue with Higgins. I just didn't like what Higgins said when when they benched me in 2015. Higgins did an interview uh, in BC when he said uh, players are the, usually the last one to learn the expiration date. That's the only thing I ever had that – negative that I had against Higgins cause, but it the reason why they benched me was because of Thorpe so like I already knew why what he was doing but he, he didn't have to say that like if he would never said that he would have still been the head coach when because they, they won in BC which was something we rarely did so mm-hmm. like he would have still been the head coach he, you just don't come out and say that about players who's done nothing but represent this the team in the city and clearly i wasn't done like i got benched i think i had six sacks uh and i was 
leading the league. And when I came back two games later, three games later, I was still like top two or three in the league. And I ended up leading the league that year. So like that the only thing I ever had about Higgins was that comment he made. And, you know, I still haven't talked to Higgins to this day. Like I see him in Calgary. He comes to the games. He comes to sit by a locker room. I, I still I don't talk to him. You don't you don't talk about people like that. Does in that my opinion. Does that give you motivation, though, John? Because, you know, obviously that year you get benched. This gets said, said of you. But yet you make the all-star team. You make the East all-star team. Just to, yeah. yourself, just to yourself, was that was that one of the ways to basically telling them, hey, well, F you. Look what I can, yeah. look what I can do. You benched me and you made a mistake. Yeah, for sure. And, and then that wasn't, that wasn't just to him. That was to the three guys that had a hand in benching me that mm-hmm. year. <laughs> yeah. But, like, I, I, I use, like, and everybody's different. Some people live off of uh, you got to pep them up in order for them to play good. Like, I, I, I don't. Like, I'm going to play as hard as I can. But, if, like, what motivated me was the naysayers and, and the doubters. And, and that, that's what kind of sprung me to life a little bit. Mm-hmm. Even in even in 2019, when everybody was like, "Oh, he played terrible in 2018," little did they know I had displaced my shin in training camp. I had broke, I had uh, tore my knee. You know, I had ripped my elbow uh, muscle off or my elbow tendon. It's you know, it, 2018 was tough, but you know, it, it, whatever. I had a great time for the most part. You know, 14 years. If you don't get some criticism. What are you doing? Um, as, a, as for those who don't know, who just, you know, we're just Joe fans. What is it like for you as a player being benched uh, well, I mean, and having and having to go through that? Because I'm sure a lot of, you know, we're, we're, we go to work every day. We may get, you know, we may get crapped on by our bosses for whatever reason. And it's not, the, and I'm sure it's not the, it's not the same thing as being a player who is playing for everybody. Yeah. And, but, no, yet, but yet you're being it was benched. Definitely tough. It was a tough field to swallow because, like, it was no, it was no just course for it. Like, it was just, it was just two guys basically thought they want to reinvent the wheel, and one guy who's the head coach that 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 tried to go along with it. Mm-hmm. But you know, it, it was it's a life lesson. You know what I mean? Like, no matter what you do for people, like they still a lot of people are still ungrateful. Um, but again, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't let it stop me. I still played pretty good that year. And, and, and that was it. It was just a small blip on the radar, man. My overall experience in, in football has, has been, was, was wonderful. All right. Let's talk about the paradigm shift that happened in 2019. I mean, like you think about it, like the start of the year. I mean, this was a recipe for a complete and utter disaster, especially after years of, let's call it what it is, futility from the team. But then 2019 comes along. New head coach comes in six days before the regular season starts. A new quarterback steps up to the plate and everything just seems to fall into place. Talk to talk to us about the 2019 season, just how everything sort of just fell into place and things just exploded the way they did for Montreal. Uh, I mean, and it's going to be kind of tough to say this without ousting a lot of people, but 2019 wasn't really supposed to happen. You know, it was a lot of, there's a lot of negativity from the onslaught of that year, man. The locker room, not, not the locker room, but, like from the from the ops point of view, mm-hmm. 
or football from the upper level football side of it from the coaching staff it was a lot of turmoil and there's a lot of finger pointing and there's a lot of um uh i think i can do a better kind of situation but like you said you know kahari stepped in uh he took the handles right away he's like listen this is how we're gonna do it guys if we don't win we we gonna we don't if we don't win, it's not going to do from the lack of preparation. You know what I mean? Basically, it's going to be because somebody beat us because they earned it. So, you know, that that first game was – the first game was actually a close game in Edmonton, close-ish kind of game. That second game, we all thought he was crazy. Uh, I think we, it was like 33-10. to 10. Was, I can't even remember. It was a blowout. It was disgusting. But we came back, like, in one of the next three games, and he's like, listen, y'all just have some faith in me. And, you know, do the – even through unpopular opinion, Cavis was one of the guys that had faith in him, and and Cavis did a great job of trying to make the the locker room professional. And Cavis uh, did uh, got some blame from some stuff. I don't know about whatever, but Cavis did some right things in there that a lot of people don't get him give him credit for. Also, um, uh, but he tried his best. You know, when he, when he got the job, and people forget Cavis was never a GM. He was always a coach, but when he got the job, it wasn't, it wasn't in the, it wasn't left in the best situation. You know what I mean? It was like when pop left, the alloys were in shambles basically. And the guy was kind of put in a position where he just had to do what best he could. And and he did the best he knew how to do, but you know, coming out and winning the uh, last few games and getting the team back into the playoff run, it, it, it was, it felt good. It was definitely a blessing, especially coming from, you know, nobody expecting us to do much and, and us believing in each other in the locker room was feeling good. And and like you guys said, it all started with belief in the quarterback because Vernon wasn't even starting quarterback that year uh, at the beginning of 2019. It was Pip and it was – it was um, Schultz. Uh, yeah, Matt Schultz. But, you know what I mean, they, those guys got injured. VA – was Wally Pip? You know what I mean? He was Lou Garrett. He just came in. Oh, excuse me, Mickey Mantle. And he just came in and, and took the job. And, you know, that's how it was. But, and Tressman said this a lot too. He's like, if you have faith in your quarterback or if people believe in your quarterback, then that's half the battle. Yeah, you know, half the battle is having a good quarterback. Another half is having people believe in them. And, the way he, the way VA played up uh, for the majority of the season, a lot of people started believing him, and, and you know he got the respect for the team. Mm-hmm. And also, too, I think uh, or a lot took a lot of people by surprise. I think league wide, it was just the fact that as Montreal kept winning games and just winning people over, and even the way you guys won those games, mm-hmm. and just restoring that that passion, that fire yeah. that Montrealers have for football. I mean. You saw it on the sidelines, like just seeing how like fans were just becoming a part of the game yeah. at Percival Molson Stadium, like that. Yeah, going from going from having like ten, eight to ten thousand fans to having twenty, twenty one thousand fans, you know, felt like overnight. But you know, it was a slow build up. But you know, it was it felt good to bring that back to the city, and I was you know I was happy to be a part of it because they they. Could, when they fired Cavis and whatever, they could have cut me too. They could have been like, oh, now nah, Bowman's out too. Like, whatever, they could have done whatever. 
But for me to be a part of that was special. And one probably one of the most special nights I remember was playing Calgary. And it, it I don't know what happened or who queued up some music, but, you know, the lights was out and everybody had their cell phones out. And it was a game that was coming down to the last play or two. I got a sack, I think, uh, like right at the end of the game. Mm-hmm. And that game was special, man. And that, that's the kind of atmosphere Montreal could be. And and I was just glad to be a part of it. You're, Did it br- you're not the only person, John, who said that about we, we what Cliff and I have dubbed the Firefly game because yeah, it was crazy. It, it was. <laughs> I mean, even to this day, you know, the Owls are still using just that to to promote and to hype up, you know, what's coming up for the 2021 season. And it's, you know, as you said, you something changed in 2019 that fans who have been around for a long time have not seen in many, many years. And then and on top of that, too, what you guys pulled off versus Winnipeg. Yeah, was uh, that, that restored some belief. I mean, if not even belief, that restored some excitement because you you had a team that was down by like thirty and a half. Like I don't even think the first quarter we I opened my eyes. It was twenty one nothing in the first. I was like, "What the heck is going on?" <laughs> and then you know what? Crazy the crazy play that doesn't get talked. Like everybody remembers the touchdowns, the comeback, whatever. When the key catching the two point conversion. Ryan Brown catching that interception right before halftime. They had the ball on like the 40-yard line with like 30 seconds to go, and they tried to get cute, throw a little screen play, and uh, Ryan Brown got an interception. And and, and that we, we knew that, like, I went to the locker room. I said, hey, we saw all their tricks. They can't trick us anymore. You know what I mean? A fake spike. And the court, the running back leaked up the, the, the sideline for – for 60 yards, you know, like they, they ran all their trick plays. And so we, we gathered ourselves in the locker room at half and we came out in the second half and, you know, we played, we played pretty good ball. Yeah. The, I, I, again, like the firefly game, a lot of people will remember the miracle on Mount Royal that day because uh, it, yeah. as you said, it, you know, as we're saying, it, it, it it's brought back, uh, it, it brought back pro football to Montreal after the longest time. And, I'm sure you guys. It didn't go as as you wanted it to in the playoffs, but for to have basically a full house at Purcell Molson, you know, almost twenty twenty one thousand there in the stands. Yeah, it was. I'm sure you guys as fa- as players just loved being able to to hear and to to play in front of all the fans that you did. Yeah, it was great energy for sure. And you know, other than winning the Great Cup, I'd, there's no other other way I'd rather go out playing. What about with uh, your own bobblehead, which also came out during the game? <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, I think I've got one, too. That, that was a sweet bobblehead. They said I'm the only bobblehead with a visor on. <laughs> I mean, how crazy is that? Like, what, like, when they come to you and say, we're making a bobblehead of you, like, what, what goes through your head right away? Um, I was like, wow. Finally, <laughs> you know, after after 13 years, I finally get something. No, it was, it was good. Like that thing they told me, like, uh, well, actually, they told me like right when the season about to start. So I was like, okay, so you ain't gonna cut me. <laughs> I, I gotta be here for Bobble Giveaway Day. <laughs> At least let you get to that point. Yeah, and then, uh, yeah, and that along with 
Yeah, I mean, another special thing that happened in 2019 was uh, it was a place, uh, a store called Off the Hook, mm-hmm. and they had a, a John Bowman night, and they made some T-shirts and stuff. And I, I love Angelo and Harry and those guys at Off the Hook. Um, yeah, they, that was special too. So there's a lot of great things that happened in 2019. And if, I, if I remember correctly too, John, I think I think in the history that the Owls have been doing that type of promo, you are in great company because AC was the only other one, I think, in te- on the team who had his made. So you and AC have your only, <laughs> only bobbleheads. So. <laughs> listen, I'll be, I'll, I'll be, love to be in that, that line like any day. That's some, that's some pretty rarefied yeah. air. I mean, like that right is. there. I mean, if that there's doesn't cement of, your legend status, yeah. I mean, if that doesn't cement your leg- legend status, John, I don't know what will. <laughs> now, that's like 33 years of football, 34 <laughs> Now, obviously, John, you were known for your defensive prowess. You know how you know where you stand in the all-time greats when it comes to to career sacks and stuff. But one thing you never had really been able to celebrate uh, was your first ever defensive interception back in 2019. Yeah, what was it? I mean, play we 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 expect you know defensive players to get you know an interception here or there, but for you. It was, you know, it was your last, you know, what ended up being your last. Uh, it's crazy because, yeah. like, like I've, dr- I've actually dropped, like, three or four. But a lot of, like, I would have thought I'd been had an interception. I had an interception before, but it was in a playoff game, so nobody remembers it. But it was against, it was against BC. We blew the doors off of BC that year. They had uh, um, Lee. I can't remember his name. Tracy Lee, I don't remember the quarterback. No, Casey Prentice. Yeah, Casey Prentice. Uh, yeah, we beat the we beat the brakes off. But I had an interception that game, but nobody remembers it because in the playoffs. Uh, but no, it was a good good feeling. You know, thanks. Shout out to Fabian Foot for harassing the guy back there, and I actually gave the ball to my dad in that game. So, shout out to him. Yeah. Well, I think you know. I think it, you know. It's like. Uh, he's like, ah, he had one in the playoffs already. We have to give him a regular season one. We got to remember, I guess they, we have to remember that one the most. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. The playoff one was for a touchdown. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's true. Nobody remembers the, the 44 yard touchdown I yeah. had. I guess we were up by like 40 points. So uh, an extra six didn't matter. Good old garbage time touchdowns, right? <laughs> I, listen, I, I loved it. <laughs> it was like the one of the last plays of the game too. It was it was great. Yeah. Now, during your career too in Montreal, you also became uh, uh, I would say a pretty big thing for your fashion. You are the best, one of the best dressed men I have seen. Um, <laughs> did was it something that was always all John Bowman, or was it uh, somebody who had a, a hand in saying? Uh, giving you your style and, and you made it your own. How did you? No, I definitely, definitely. I thought I could dress before I got here. I just didn't have a lot of clothes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but when I got here, and you know, and she's gonna love this. Uh, I'll, I'll send her the, the 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 recording once you guys are done. But this lady by the name of Irene Dracos, and she seen me and Biscuit walking down the street, and she's like, "Hey, you know, guys, I'm looking for some football players to wear my clothes." Uh, and they they had a brand. It was Sean John, Sean John's brand at the time. Uh, and she's like, "Hey, come 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 wear my clothes, whatever." And so she definitely had a hand in helping me discover my fashion. Uh, but you know, also just 
Instagram and stuff like that is help push it out to to the limelight. But because I always always dress up. If people look at well, I guess since my Instagram got hacked, my pictures are gone. But I had pictures on Instagram from back in like oh 2010, 11, 12, from when I used to dress up for games. But it just now, I guess, because it just now became uh, good to be on social media, it just got into the limelight. Yeah. Wow. It's about it's about that drip, as they say. Yeah, drip, <laughs> that's what the kids call it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, John, for all intents and purposes, you've, you're you're pretty much retired now. I mean, unfortunately, you, your last season was supposed to be 2020, but obviously, with COVID nineteen, uh, you were denied the opportunity to sort of finish things off on your terms. Uh, talk to us about now post retirement. Like, how how do you feel? Even though you're you're still part of the league as far as being part of the players association, but uh, now that you've actually stepped away from the game, what have been your thoughts as far as post football, John Bowman? Yeah, so um, well, actually, I haven't even got the chance to start that yet. Just uh, dealing with uh, trying to get the league going, uh, being a part of the uh, being vice president of the union and being part of the bargaining committee. Like I've had to, I've had to do a lot of um, things for that role, um, but post football me is like right now I'm on vacation and and I'm interviewing uh, for um, a district sales manager position for a company down here uh, that manufactures steel products. Um, yeah, so like it's getting back to work. I mean, I play in the CFL, so it's no like very few are retiring millionaires, you know, that don't have to work. Uh, so it's just back to the grind, trying to find my way, trying to, trying to find my next steps in life. Would you ever consider like a, a career in coaching or broadcasting or anything like that? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not against it. It's just like, well, as far as the CFL, I can't because I'm a union representative. <clears throat> so I, I can't, I can't handle both jobs. I, um, but you know, I kind of like want to step away from football for a bit see if i see if i can do something else but you know if 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 things happen and somebody called me if marcus brady and frank and and frank wright called me say john won't you be an assistant d-line coach for the Colts?" i can't turn that down but you know that's you know right now i just want to relax get away from football for a bit and just have a good time all right you made a name for yourself anyways i think did you get you were on a couple of uh frequently on a couple of radio shows here in Montreal. So you, you made a name for yourself technically in broadcasting, right? Yeah, I mean, a, a few people, they like they, people like my energy. They like my interviews. Uh, I actually got a couple years ago, they thought I was going to retire. I don't know what gave them that, that uh, assumption, but um, they thought I was going to retire, and they offered me, uh, uh, they, they wanted me to interview for the foot, Friday Night Football or Football TSN panel. Uh, but... I kept playing, and um, so, I, but I don't know how things are now with them uh, and, and hiring, and, and what are they going to do as far as uh, filling slots and spots uh, for 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 sports coming back, uh, especially the CFL in twenty twenty. Well, I know too that uh, you know uh, the Alouettes, uh, the Alouettes radio broadcaster still hasn't announced their play by play and color man. Uh, Hey, let's get you back. Let's get you in the uh, get you back on the field. <laughs> Rick Moffat, that's hard shoes to feel, you know. Uh, and I think I think Marco is still might be color. I don't know. I don't know what's happening with there, but um, 
if they if they want to fly me up and, uh, every week to do that, I, I'll do it. <laughs> there, there you go. We, we speak into existence. During your career, John, uh, um, obviously, you know, if you don't go through a career without an injury, you know, you are the luckiest player in the world. But you know, there always seemed to be something that uh, that you know your body breaks down, something happens. At any time during your career, was there one specific injury? Because we, we, you mentioned it earlier in the interview about some of the, uh, the injuries that you had. What, uh, what injury did you ever have during your career which made you think your, your football career may have been over earlier than you wanted it to be? Um, well, before, like earlier than I wanted, but when I got hurt a couple of years ago, I already thought my career was over. Uh, but I guess when I was younger, uh, I want to say like year eight or nine, I think I, I tore some cartilage in my ribs and like I had to get a shot before every game. Like not a lot of people knew whatever. I just put a, a pad over it and played, but that lingered because everything you did from torquing and turning and laughing and sneezing, everything was painful and I got new to heal one day, but it took it took a long, long, long time to heal. Um, so that was kind of a sucky situation. I never thought my career was going to be over. I just it just sucked. And uh, in 2012, where I blew my knee out, I kind of thought I kind of thought it was worse than what it was. You know, luckily for me, it, it was the the best of all evils, and it was just an MCL and a quick you know two hour surgery. And four or five weeks out, and I was back. Uh, but I never really had career-threatening injuries, just nagging injuries. How were you able to play? Because we, we were both Cliff and I remember and you mentioned it too. When you tore your muscle in your arm, how were you able to come back? So we, we saw. I think you're out hardly any time because when we saw you go off the field, I remember saying to uh, to Cliff and the, to the uh, my friend next to me, "It's like John doesn't look too good." But I think it was in a couple of weeks you were back much more bandaged than you normally were, but how were you able to, I mean, I'm sure there's pain that goes into it. How are you able to, to, to come back from something like that in such a quick period of time? I mean, it's pain management for sure. Yeah. And then like assurances that, you know, like I couldn't make it worse, you know, it was kind of one of those things too that factored into it. Um, I, I just like playing. Like when you get to that point in your career, it's like, how many do you have left? And if I would have set out, you know, I think it was like initially they, they was thinking about putting me in a six game and I told them no. But if I would have set out six games, you know, I would have missed, you know, you know, what was the, the year before I retired. So, you know, they, they just say, hey, just if you don't think it's going to be a long term injury, let us know now. We won't put you in the sixth game. And we'll take we we'll take good care of you. So, like I think two weeks later, I think I, I heard it against Hamilton. I missed two games, and I came back, and, and uh, it was pretty good. Walking wounded, but you just like a like yeah. a Timex watch. You take a beating and keep or take a <laughs> licking and keep on ticking. Yeah. <laughs> John, what about uh, in the locker room itself? I mean, the camaraderie is second to none. You're in there with your brothers. You're fighting, and you know you're going to war together. But uh, how about off the field? Like, 
when you guys want to go and just have fun, like what were the, who are the guys that you could always count on to go go out after the game or after practice, whatever, and you know you're going to have a good time, not get in trouble necessarily, but just <laughs> have a good time. I mean, it, it, it varied in stages. So like when I first got to Montreal, it was actually crazy. But the backup quarterback at the time was like his name was Nilon. And uh, so, like, Neilan was, like, the only person we knew with a car. And he wasn't getting in the games anyway. So he was like, yeah, let's go out. Let's go have a good time. And so after the games – and we, we had a pretty good record at the time. I think we started off, like, 7-0 and in 2006. Uh, so, like, he used to take us out or whatever. Then I got a little older. I started hanging with Stu. And we would go upscale partying, I guess. Uh, so we wouldn't be in the club so much. We'd go to like happy hours and stuff like that. But by the end of my career, like I was, I was going up by myself because like these guys, like the age difference between I had teammates who were 22 years old. I was, I was 37. Like we had nothing in common. Like I'd go out <laughs> with like uh, I want to say like BJ from time to time because he was a neighbor. We'd go sit on a terrace, have a have a drink or some food. And I come back home, I'd be home by seven. <laughs> you know, these my, my D linemen, I loved them. They were they were trying to do D line movie nights at let's go to the nine thirty movie. Uh, boys, there's no way. So <laughs> so like we do like we go to the movies right after practice when I wanted to go. Uh, so we go to the matinee. Um, definitely had a great time with everybody. Uh, just you know, just like everything, you get a little older and your, and your taste for things change. But we we always did D line night. We go out and eat, or we uh, go to get a game room and have a good time. Um, so it was never like everybody always had a good time, and and it was never like one person. But so it was just a bit of everybody. Like you said, the camaraderie in the locker room is just lively. And when you're winning some games and you're feeling good. From, from your production on the field, it kind of makes your everyday life better, too. So, yeah. uh, Can't beat that. <laughs> no, um, yeah. We've asked players, too, before. Obviously, the locker room's better. At least that's what we, we think as fans, that the locker room uh, atmosphere would be better when a team is winning. Uh, are there any thing, things that fans need to know that, that are maybe a little misleading, saying that if you're losing... It doesn't necessarily mean it's the locker room that's the issue. You know what I'm trying to say? It's, it's that win or lose, I mean, how 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 are the ebb and flows of the locker room during a team that may not be doing as well than, say, one when you, when you go to the Great Cup? Yeah, I mean, winning and losing shouldn't uh, determine the temperament of your locker room. Like, your locker room should be steady. It should be like a, a place for everyone to go hang out, you know, mingle, whatever. Uh, if it's, if your locker room has ebbs and flows, then it's, it's, it's more than just fo- a football thing. It's, it's, you know, it's a people thing. So, like, for the most part, in, in my 13, 14 years with the team, our the locker room remained steady. You know, we had times where guys got into fisticuffs, but it was never a daily thing. Like, I, I can only think of probably one year where the locker room is sucked to be in the locker room. Like we, we couldn't wait to get out of there, get in and get out, you know, go to practice and then leave immediately. So 
your locker room needs to remain consistent no matter what your production on the field. And for the most part, the Alouettes locker room stayed jailed. Like, we always had a nice mix of veterans and, and young guys to to show us how to use uh, Twitter and such like that. Um, but football, when you lose, it doesn't it doesn't make your locker room suck. But you're not having as much fun. Right. Like you're not. We're not going to the locker room pop popping uh, Pepsi's and, and playing loud music and, and just living it up. But we didn't go in there and badmouth each other either. We it wasn't constant fighting either. Okay. Because as obviously. Fans can be Monday morning quarterback. I'm sure you've met a few that have been Monday Monday morning quarterbacks, and and you're I'm sure you're 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 hearing a fan. Obviously, you're trying to be as you know as nice to them as possible. But I'm sure I'm sure there are a few times in your head where you're thinking to yourself, "Man, you really don't know what's happening." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, on more than a few occasions, like I say, but unless you've been in the locker room, and not just a locker room, because college and high school or university in in Canada and high school and CJEP is all different from professional like this this is what we do for a living like we you can you generally have the option to like or not like somebody in 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 the pro because you know somebody gets paid more or you don't get paid enough or the coach likes him because he does this like in college you know everybody's on the same playing field so like unless you've been in a professional locker room uh, like you can't go off what media or what fans say because they don't know. Like they really don't know. Uh, it's a lot of every time teams loses or whatever going the losing streak. Oh, they're against the coach. They're not fighting for the coach. Well, I mean players don't play for coaches anyway. Like you play their system. You play hard. But like I love Tressman. I love Jim Pop. I love. Uh, the Don Don Matthews, I love Mike Sinclair, but not once did I say, oh, I'm going to play for them. Like, no, I played for my teammates and I played for my family and I played for the city, but, like, I didn't play for a spe- specific coach. And any good coach would tell you, don't play for me, play for each other. And that's what we did. Now, let's shift gears a little bit here. Uh what made you decide to move to Montreal full time? Like when you just when after you started playing for the Alouettes, what at what point did you decide I got to stay here year round? Well, I, uh, like I, I would come home. I think I came home for a brief minute in two thousand and after the two thousand six season. I had just resigned. We went to the Great Cup, so two thousand seven. I'm just sitting home doing nothing. Like the atmosphere is sucks. Like nobody in my hometown plays pro ball, so like. Oh, I didn't have anybody to train and push me. Like I was just working out, going going through the motions. And then I called Jim Pop, and and he's like, "Hey, man, do you got anything going on in Canada right now? Because like I'm I'm just sitting home bored." And he's like, "Yeah, we we do off season program where guys work out, and 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 I think it was called Velocity at the time. And he's like, "You're more than welcome to come up here. We live in the West Island." And you can train whatever, be around a couple guys. So that's what I did my first couple of years. And then Anwar Stewart pulled me to the side. He's like, hey, if, if you want to make it tough for the team to cut you, you entrench yourself in the community. So if anything ever goes wrong, the rumblings will make it so hard for them to cut or release you because the city loves you. 
And so I started doing uh, Alouette, Adopt the Alouette program where we go talk in schools and did about 400 plus school visits and, and stuff like that. So uh, probably like in 2006, 2000, well, actually when I first got to Montreal, I never really came back home. I came home for a little bit in 2006 and then, well, after 2006 and then from 2007 on, I stayed up there year round and I just come home for like a week or two weeks and then I come back to Montreal. Wow. And now that you're no longer a Montrealer, unfortunately, what's the one thing you're going to miss most about Montreal itself? Um, well, I'll keep it PG. (laughs) (laughs) Fair fair enough. uh, Just the, just the diversity. Like Montreal is just a, a melting pot of everything. And not just F, just not, not just the people, but the food, uh, the cultures, the, the nightlife, just the city is a buzz. And, and it's hard to explain to people who's never been to Montreal because in the U.S., only thing we think about when we think of Canada, well, in my area, was Toronto. Like, we always heard of Toronto, but we never heard of Montreal. But just the, the people, the food, the atmosphere, everything, the, the whole total of Montreal is going to be missed by me. Poutine from uh, Mapu Moulier is amazing. Oh. And how, how, I don't know if you've heard about this, but uh, Ramado's is closed. Yeah, that's sad, man. I saw oh. it on Twitter. Broke my heart. I, that, that, that started me into the Portuguese chicken crave. That was my spot. 25, 26 years, 27 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, a sad, that's a sad day. Uh, and, and, you know, unfortunately, like, that's not the first Montreal institution to go down. Like, Moishas went down earlier uh, last year. Um, a couple other restaurants, prominent restaurants, just didn't open back up. Uh, because of coronavirus, so there's a lot of stuff that Montreal has changed. It's it's it. I was wondering maybe if that was the real reason you decided to head back home. <laughs> no more rebuttals. I'm out. Got a dip. You spent so much time here in Montreal and in Canada and in Quebec. Um, I at least have to ask you, of all the places that you were, I'm hoping, I'm curious to know, besides Montreal, what other place in Quebec will you remember the most? Oh, man. How much travel did you get to do while, while you were here? <laughs> I actually did a lot more because I stayed there year round. Yeah. But, you know, like Quebec City is special. Like their their energy, we brought the Grey Cup there, and their energy for just everything is off the chains. Um, where else did I go? I've been to Laval. That doesn't really count. But you know, I'll, I'll just say Quebec City because I didn't venture off too much into Quebec because a lot of it, like the further from the city you go, the more French it is. Uh, but Quebec City is special, man. Like the energy in that city. Again, the the town, the the atmosphere is beautiful. Women there also, but it's it's a good city too. Did, did you find uh, like you, I know you've, you've been taking French lessons for years, and I know you still feel like it's rudimentary at best. But uh, do you feel like <laughs> do you feel like it was? Do you feel like you could have done more with the opportunity to learn the French, or is it just something that I'll try it and see what happens? Well, I, I did the best I could. You know, well, I, no, I didn't. I'm lying. I, I could have done. I mean, you can always do more, 
But, you know, I, I, I actually, je comprends plus que je parle, but I just, like, whatever. I just, it's so hard when you don't know everything, because you, like, one verb or one one word can change eight different ways from, you know, from, from the initial verb. If mm-hmm. it's more than one person, if it's in, on, or around, like, it's, it's tough, you know, you gotta, and then you gotta know uh the sex of uh of of the sexuality of of, of things like i don't know I, how do i know if the office is a, a male or female like i don't know and, and so it's definitely a tough language you know i had fun my french teacher still messages me today she said even though like i'm probably like a grade three level french that's more than a lot of um uh, um, that's more than a lot of Americans, so I'll still be able to impress some people. Yeah. There, you, there you go. That's I, I've always said the bonjour, merci. Like, I mean, that that goes a long way here. And oh. yeah. um, during your career, now we're talking about just in Quebec itself. Um, what when it comes to the cities that you played in, when you guys were the away team, uh, in your in your opinion, which were uh, which city was your favorite to go to and which city was your least favorite to go to um vancouver like vancouver by far is the is one of my is my favorite road city it's the atmosphere the energy it was a drive like my dad drove up so i got to hang out with my dad uh same reasons for montreal The, the culture is different there's a lot of different uh, food options, which is always good for me, and it, it also had a, had a small taste of America. You know, like I could go into a sneaker shop. This is before Montreal had got like sneaker stores like that uh, outside of just Foot Locker. Like you can go into a store and look for a pair of Jordans and stuff like that. But Vancouver, by far, is is my favorite road city. At least favorite. It's a tie between Hamilton. Uh, Saskatchewan um, and Edmonton. All three of those places stink. Really? Um. <laughs> it's funny that you say Edmonton, ver- you know, Edmonton versus Calgary. I understand Regina because it's a small city. You know, Hamilton is is a steel town. The stadium's yeah. in the middle of, of houses. Yeah. Um, Edmonton. I've never been to Edmonton. Uh, Cliff could probably speak to it, but why? Why this it... particular city? Yeah, I mean, well, the, the Saskatchewan and, and Hamilton speak for itself. Uh, but, like, Edmonton, like, for a big city, for, like, Edmonton, like, the big second biggest mall in North America for, like, the the millions of people in this town, there's nothing to do. Like, it's, like, you, we stay downtown, obviously. At, at like, 501, there's nobody on the streets. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you, we sitting downtown. There's nothing to do. Like not even as far as partying. There's just no. This doesn't feel like there's a culture in the city. There's no atmosphere in the downtown area. Like I haven't been outside of downtown Edmonton, so I can't speak to the 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 area surrounding the downtown core. But the downtown core of Edmonton is just lacking for a major city in a city with two two professional teams like it's just lacking can confirm because i i do have to go to edmonton uh i got family out there and yeah it, uh, you're absolutely right like the downtown core 
it feels like they just roll up the streets at five o'clock, like you said. It's yeah. almost like a government town. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, the downtown core is just crazy. I mean, the single tax is great. I love that about Alberta, but the downtown core of Edmonton is just, it isn't good. And surprisingly, Winnipeg, I liked Winnipeg. It was just crazy. Like, <laughs> not a lot of people like Winnipeg. The city, like, it's small, but there's, like, a couple things to do with a few people. Like, everything always feels packed and lively. Like, I remember we, we played the Grey Cup there in, in 2006. It felt like we was there every week in 2006. We played there... 2006, 2007. I probably played there in Winnipeg like eight times, but it's all, it felt like it was a buzz. Uh, it wasn't many things to do, but the little things that there were to do it was packed. Uh, it was just a good time. And I, I'm guessing you, you made it out to Portage in Maine, also. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> Once or twice. If, if you didn't, did you really go to Winnipeg? Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. John, I'm curious. Why the number seven? Actually, it was... Uh, like I, I wanted to get number eight. And true story, 2008, 2000, so 2009, uh, Brady had retired. And so I was like, hey, I'm going, to, I'm going to get number eight. And then Kerry Carter was wearing number seven. And he went to Pop and said, hey, I want to change the eight. And Pop would let him get it for me. I was like, he he got a sweet number already. And, and like me, I've always had eight in my numbers. Like I was 88 in college, 88 in high school. Uh, everywhere I played, I tried to have an eight associated with my number. And I was 48 in Montreal. I was actually 58 for a week. Glad nobody took pictures of that. <laughs> and um, so I went to Papa and said, hey, let me get number eight. He's like, hey, Carrie already acts. He's, he's a, I think he played one more year at the time than I did. <clears throat> so they gave it to him. And I was like, okay, what number's available? So he's like, well, you can get Carrie's old number. <laughs> so, I, so I picked up seven. All right. And now it's it's probably going to be weird. I'm I'm really hoping like there's a new equipment manager in Montreal, and he may not know you from a hole in the wall. So I don't know if they're going to have that significance. I really hope that they have a bit of a moratorium on the number seven because it's going to be weird as hell to see someone else wearing seven now. <laughs> and, and you know, I've, I've had this discussion, and and they said that nobody's going to wear it again. But I, who knows? Um, I like and somebody on Twitter, we had a, a good discussion. He's like. I, they asked me, uh, why do I think I, number seven isn't my number? Like, it's the team's number. Like, so if they choose to retire it, give it to somebody, uh, keep it on ice for a little bit, they can do whatever they want. As players, you know, it's we just play. Like, they could have gave me 97 and said, hey, no, you can't change your number to seven. I'm forced to wear it. So, like, I don't dictate what's going to happen with that number. If they give it away next year, fine. I like they haven't retired Chip's number. Uh, but they also have not had anybody in it. Um, I saw some this year. I think somebody sent me a post that somebody's actually going to wear number 11. Uh, but we'll see what happens. But if they choose to give it to somebody, like, there's no – I can't I can't do nothing about it. Yeah. I mean, like, th there should at least be a moratorium because, I mean, like, it, I know it's it's tough, especially with retiring numbers because, especially in football, too, there's so many yeah, positions only, that have numbers. Get, 99 of them well in canada you get 101 of them 
<laughs> zero to double zero. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, I mean, this has been an incredible journey, John. Uh, when you think back at uh, your career now, uh, what's the one thing that's going to make you smile the most besides winning those great cups? <laughs> uh, just like meeting the people I've met, you know, like I mentioned, like Chip Cox, for instance, who plays who plays 13 years with one guy on the same team, like, you know, in any sport, just, I mean, I was the best man for Anwar Stewart, you know, uh, me and Billy Parker, we, we, we owned properties together. Like we talk every day, damn near to this day, even when he was coaching me, you know, we still had our, we had our bond. We treated professionally and such though. You know, Marcus Brady, who helped bring me to the CFL, you know, being him being my roommate, now seeing him being the first or one of the few uh, black offensive coordinators in the NFL. Um, Avon, you know, who's a silent hero for our Grey Cup champions, you know, me and him scrapping to make the team in 2006, you know, running down on kickoffs together, uh, having each other's back, you know, that's what you miss the most. Like, I'm not going to miss getting up and hitting and waking up at 6.30 just to go to practice and, and get the, the snot knocked out of my nose. Like, I'm not going to miss that. I'm going to miss sitting down with my boys <clears throat> uh, during practice or after the game and talking about something other than football, you know, because, you know, whether people know it or not, we have other interests. Uh, so, like, just kicking it. Um, chopping up, watching basketball or going shopping or, you know, seeing who got the best outfit for the day, you know, things like that. That's the kind of things I'm going to miss the most. That's true. And it's, and you'd be hard pressed to find another work environment that would offer even close to a similar experience. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's hard. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of athletes, and I don't know yet, but I'm just going off what I heard. When when they get out of the game, it's just hard to replicate that feel, that locker room feeling. And you know, Mike, my, my my one of my favorite coaches of all time, Mike Sinclair, who played in the NFL for a long, long time. He he said he's like, you're gonna do things to chase that feeling. Just know, like, you will never find that feeling again. The closest thing you're going to get to that feeling is coaching. So <clears throat> I've, I've, I've heard all of the tales uh, from post-career players who tell me, like, there's nothing else like playing football. And it's not lining up playing football. It's the, the hanging with you, learning your homeboys, hanging out with your homeboys, getting to learn each other and, and you know, Doing stuff other than football together, you know that's 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 what brings teams together. Again, we can't thank you enough for doing this for us. Uh, I mean, like I said, it was an absolute trip. Yeah, and I appreciate every one of you guys, man. Like, one thing I can say about my my time in in the CFL, even on road games, you know, fans kind of appreciated what I did. Partly because, like, I, I wasn't super – I didn't look super muscular. I wasn't super fast. I just worked. And the, a regular guy on the street can say, oh, if I just work, I can be like John Bowman. So I'm probably one of the most relatable guys 
to to ever play football, you know. Uh, you guys can just see themselves doing what I do. So I, I really appreciate every moment I've had in, in the CFL. Um, just walking through the city, giving giving me love and appreciation, and it, it's been a, it's been a blast. Yeah, I wouldn't change it. Whew, my goodness, what what an experience! What what an experience! There's just no other way to put it. Uh, I, my gosh, I mean, folks, he left it all out there, just like he did every single game day. John Bowman left it all out there for us here in this interview, and it was such an absolute honor and privilege to be able to talk to John, not just about his football career. That that in and of itself mm-hmm. was definitely would be worth the price of admission alone, but to hear him talk about life, talk about his experiences in Montreal, and now, unfortunately, having him go back to back to America to you know find out what the next chapter of his life involves. I mean, it, we pretty much we, we put it all out there, and... I can't thank John enough for coming on the flight deck to talk with us and share his experiences here in Montreal. And Lord knows we're going to miss him. It's so so weird to think that he's not going to be a part of this Montreal landscape anymore, but such is life. And, uh, you know, John's always welcome back here anytime he wants. And it was just an absolute treat to be able to sit and talk with him. Exactly. I mean, and for those of you just knew John Bohm and the Montreal Alouette to actually hear and uh, to hear his his story about how, you know, he went from indoor football and to have the ties that he did to current, you know, to to players that came up here and how he was convinced to come up here and play the Canadian game. You know, it, it was just one of those decisions that if he had said no and decided to do whatever he was going to do, we may have never known John as a player, but it's, uh, and he would have made a name for himself, so... He he is one of those guys that um, no matter how long you follow the Alouettes, um, you will always remember the name John Bowman. And I would not be surprised. I'm just speculating here, Cliff, that a uh, very short period of time, I would not be surprised if we see uh, his number retired for the Montreal Alouettes. Well, if anyone deserves, I mean, like, when I think back of so many Alouettes that have played in Montreal here for so many seasons, like John did, and their number is not retired, it's it's always kind of weird to think about. I mean, that's the thing with retiring numbers too, is that especially in football, there's so many numbers and only so many, well, so, only so many to go around, yeah. and so many numbers get used and and retired and all that. So it's 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 such a weird dichotomy. But the idea of someone someone else wearing number seven right now, it, 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 I can't even wrap my head around it. Quite frankly, and I don't want to. And I, I really hope that the Alouettes really do. If they don't retire the number, at least put it like sort of a moratorium on it, just to you know, yeah. just to shelve it as sort of a, a tribute, if you will, to uh, a, a, you know a great not just football player but a great man as well. Makes me wonder that if he actually does go to to the Hall of Fame, if I'm not mistaken, is it isn't it that all the players that are currently in the Alouettes? What do we call it? Wall of Fame, uh, Ring of Honor, Ring of Honor. They're all they are all in the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. I believe they are. Yes. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, but uh, again, it was our pleasure to be speaking with him, and we hope you guys enjoyed the interview. Um, you, you can go back and listen to our other player-specific interviews by going back into the history of the Alouettes flight deck. You can do so by heading over to uh, alouettesflightdeck.ca. I think that's probably the best way to do it. Or you can check any of your uh, social media aggregates, uh, excuse me, your uh, your podcast aggregates. And we will be getting some of these 
interviews or at least portions of these interviews up on our YouTube channel. So just just be patient. So uh, we really appreciate your time. And uh, when we once we get back uh, to the when you come listen to us again, try that again. <clears throat> when you hear from us again, we'll be talking about the current 2021 season and the Alouettes run to the 2021 Grey Cup. So for everybody here at Alouette's Flight Deck, for Cliffy D, I'm Tim Capper. We're on Final Approach. Thanks for listening. Find more great shows like this at CF Pod Network on Twitter.